This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So as you guys know, I am a big fan of media, visual media, also, of course, music. Many of you know I have a a music podcast that's considerably less serious than this podcast. It's called Pretty Good Vibrations. I already have released two episodes over on that feed about my year-end playlists. So the songs that I loved the most in the calendar year of 2023 whether or not they were released in 2023. So if you want to listen to me talk about music and play some clips of my favorite stuff, I'll put a link to those episodes in the show notes here. But today I'm talking about movies and TV. And that medium, the visual storytelling, basically you could call it, is really ripe often for psychological insight, sometimes theological insight. I'm not going to do a, a ton of talking today about each of the items on these lists, but when there are uh, theological, psychological, religion-oriented angles to these shows, to my best ability without spoiling anything, I'm going to kind of mention some of those angles or what I found interesting about them. And, you know, feel free to skip this episode if you're not interested in, in hearing me talk about it. You know, we've been doing a little bit of this stuff recently Of course, Mark and I responded to Shiny Happy People, the Amazon Prime series, and uh, we just released that patron episode responding to I Think You Should Leave, uh, season one. And we've also uh, got some other ideas kind of lurking in the background. I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of responding to popular media and using it as a way to talk about, you know, the more technical and just the the topics that I am drawn to religion, psychology, et cetera, other, other sciences. So if you are interested in that kind of stuff from me, please do let me know and what you'd like me to talk about. Again, we got a few ideas kind of cooking, 
but I really love this stuff. So thank you for giving me an opportunity here today to talk about some of the stuff I love. And I thought we would start with television because I think people actually spend more time watching television, especially now in the streaming era. And I do have uh, my top 10 television shows that I watched this year uh, or last year, rather 2023. Also one note, I know I'm late on this. We're at the end of January. As I record this, maybe it'll come out in January or February. Most people do these lists before the holidays because people tend to have time around the holidays. You know, maybe you're visiting family, you fire up Netflix one night with your mom or dad or your siblings, but you know, Jeffrey had a baby in early December and we're now in the like month and a half type zone uh, with Stellan and it was just not going to be in the cards for me to do this back then when it, when it makes more sense. Maybe, maybe this year in December, I can do the same thing and it can be a little bit better timing for people. So apologize for that. Okay. TV number 10. Uh, I really loved, and so did Jaffrey, the Apple TV plus show shrinking with Jason Siegel, Jessica Williams and Harrison Ford created by Brett Goldstein from Ted Lasso, Jason Siegel and Bill Lawrence. It's about a grieving therapist who starts telling clients exactly what he thinks, uh, basically bending a lot of and breaking a lot of ethical codes for therapy. It's a dramedy. You know, it's got some Ted Lasso vibes to it. It's pretty family friendly insofar as if by that we mean parents and kids like togetherness, you know, life lessons, not family friendly. If your family is like quite conservative, I think it's probably going to be a little too crass, too much, uh, you know, sex, too much talk about sex, too many swear words, things like that. But if that's not an issue, uh, it's actually a good show to watch with, with multiple generations. I think obviously there is a lot here for me to have chewed on, uh, being now a therapist, professionally and and having a psychological education i think like there are actually moments from this show that i have used as examples with clients because a lot of what we might call the psychology behind you know plot points and various things that the there are three therapist characters siegel williams and ford all play therapists who work in a group practice together where harrison ford is kind of the the boss. And that's not really how group practices work. They kind of fudge that a little bit for dramatic effect, which is of course forgivable, but there's plenty of like genuine psychoeducation about, you know, education about psychological science amidst a whole lot of entertainment value. So this was probably a bullseye for me. If any of you had, you know, tried to predict what shows might make my top 10, I think a lot of you would have predicted that this would be in there. Uh, but I think it was really well done. Okay, number nine, 1883. This is a Paramount Plus show created by Taylor Sheridan, who has a massive deal over at Paramount. He is the creator of Yellowstone, um, a former kind of character actor. He was in Sons of Anarchy and uh, more recently in his career has kind of turned to filmmaking, writing, directing. His film Sicario kind of announced him to the world as a real filmmaking presence and talent. And, you know, I've had a hard time with Yellowstone. I, I tried it out. It didn't really click for me, but I really enjoyed 1883. And I also quite enjoyed 1923. These are both prequels to the Yellowstone saga. 1883's got Tim McGraw and Faith Hill playing, you know, real life married couple playing a married couple and Sam Elliott as a kind of cowboy lawman who helps them uh, start going west. It's the origin story of the, the Duttons as they basically make their way to the Yellowstone Ranch in Montana. The writing on this show, the, the poetry of the voiceover, which is voiced by uh, the daughter character, who's played by Isabel May, she plays Elsa Dutton, is just incredible. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about some of that dialogue. It is apparently what got Sam Elliott interested in the prog in the project. Um, I read that or heard that somewhere, and it's really beautiful. This show is gritty. It is very violent. It is very beautifully filmed. I just I recommend watching it with subtitles to not miss dialogue. If you're into this kind of thing, westerns stuff like that, I think it's worth like getting a Paramount Plus you know trial 
subscription or just getting it for a month and watching this. It's 10 episodes long and I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm, I'm interested in kind of what Taylor continues to do over there, although I'm less interested in, in Yellowstone itself. Number eight, White Lotus. This is season two of White Lotus. Mike White's originally kind of a pandemic project. The first season they filmed all on location in Hawaii, which was a creative way of kind of getting around the difficulties of getting everybody tested, keeping people safe with in the early days of COVID. Uh, and it was actually, apparently someone came to him from HBO and just said, Hey, do you have an idea for something you could do during COVID? And, and, and he wrote it as a result of that meeting. He didn't already have it. Uh, the first season was fantastic. Second season, maybe even better takes place this time in Italy on a, uh, basically at a very high end resort and white Lotus is interesting. He's always trying to kind of come at some cultural questions. In this case, a lot of it is about power and money. Um, so was, so was season one and people's places in life and, and what they have to do to get ahead. Also just very creatively made, very beautifully shot, obviously hanging out uh, for 10 episodes or whatever in Italy not a not a tough ask uh, in terms of kind of sitting sitting in that space with those characters and i i thought it was real did really a good job of looking at sort of generational issues the way that people can act out sexually from difficulties they are facing in their home life or their business life and I, it just was also extremely entertaining so that's number 8 white lotus Number seven, Fleischman is in trouble. Uh, this was a Hulu show starring Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, and Lizzie Kaplan. I've got Lizzie Kaplan season tickets, as Bill Simmons likes to say, ever since Freaks and Geeks. I love her. Um, I thought this was really well done. It was actually adapted from a novel by the novelist for TV, which is not as common. Often you'll have like, you know, TV writers or movie writers adapt a novel that someone else wrote. And it's basically about this kind of very upper class Jewish family in New York, or at least Eisenberg is Jewish. I think Claire Danes' character is a non-Jew um, that he has married, but there's really interesting, interesting stuff about religion. Eisenberg's past is basically like, he, he's like a kind of a do-gooder doctor character but who also went on one of these birthright Israel trips when he was younger. And many of his best friends are people he met on that trip. The plot of the show is basically that like his wife goes missing at the beginning. Did she leave him? Is something else going on? That's kind of the animating mystery to kick off the action. But a lot of it also is about Eisenberg's uh, Fleischman, his friendships and how much of that kind of Jewish you know, ethno-religious community is he taking part in? Has he drifted away? What does he want to pass on to their children? And I'll say, hopefully without giving away too much, the kind of final stance that the show takes on those questions about religion did feel to be not, not the stance that I am taking, for instance, with my own children. But I can see how the writer got there, or the character, if you want to say that way if it's just kind of the character's voice. Um, but the journey was really interesting, very well made, uh, again, very entertaining, and uh, just just some kind of really fun camera choices and, and stuff like that, great acting. So I would highly recommend Fleischman's in Trouble. That's my number seven. Number six, back to Taylor Sheridan. I made the most of my Paramount Plus subscription that I had for, I think I got three months for like 99 cents a month, something like that, and I blazed through some stuff. So this is another Sheridan show, it's called Special Ops Lioness, and it is like, oh man, how do I describe this? It's Zoe Saldana uh, and a few other actors and actresses I'm, I'm not as familiar with. Nicole Kidman's in it as well. Morgan Freeman plays a smaller role. Basically, Saldana plays the CIA operative who trains women to infiltrate places like terrorist cells or wealthy bankers who fund terrorism to infiltrate these groups, not through traditional means, but through relational means as women, as basically beautiful women who get in via luxury shopping friendships 
and come to befriend the wives and girlfriends of these powerful and dangerous people. And so there's a lot of layers about how do you do that ethically? What is being given up? As with other Taylor Sheridan properties, there's a lot of suspicion about kind of official channels, military and government power brokers and their incentives uh, over and against what the, the soldiers and people on the ground know to be true about these operations, things like that. Uh, I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff. If you liked Sicario, then I would just absolutely recommend Special Ops Lioness. Maybe my kind of like 40-year-old white dude stuff is is really showing here in this list. And if so, this is probably where it shows most clearly. I accept that. I'll take the criticism. I'll take the hit. But man, I loved it. I loved Special Ops Lioness. If you are sensitive to violence, to blood, things like that, um, torture, I would not recommend it. But if that sounds like some, uh, another day at the office for you, as it does for me and my media viewing habits, then I recommend it. So now we're down to the top five. Number five, Jury Duty. This is a freebie comedy that's on Prime Video. Uh, so if you have a Prime account, you can watch it for free there. There are some ads. This show was should not have worked. It is a super audacious setup where they basically everybody is an actor except one person. And uh, it features like James Marsden. Uh, he's the only like famous actor that you might know. Uh, he's from Westworld and, and a bunch of other things. He plays himself like he's an actor who got called in for jury duty. The other 10 jurors are also actors, but but less well known. And then there is this one guy <laughs> and he's a normal person. His name is Ronald Gladden and he does not know that he is in a reality television show. He thinks he's just doing jury duty in Southern California. That sounds like it could really go wrong, but it is from people who worked on The Office. It is really well done. The choice of Ronald was perfect. He is just likable enough, but just enough of a doofus. You really relate to him. You, of course, laugh at all the shenanigans that the cast gets up to kind of, you know, behind his back. It is an incredible journey and ends up being super heartwarming. And that's kind of what took it over the edge for me and, and got it so high on the list. So I would really recommend jury duty. It's eight episodes long, half an hour each a little cameo by one of my favorite up and coming comedians, Lisa Gilroy, who plays a social media influencer and uh, account runner. Oh my gosh. So funny. Uh, jury duty, man. I mean, you could, you can watch it in one or two evenings. Great kind of date night show uh, with a partner. Okay, number four, Succession, final season. I mean, you either are have fallen in love with Succession by now or you probably aren't going to watch it. So there's not a lot to add here. It's the incredibly well-written, just acerbic, dark comedy drama about a wealthy family kind of patterned after the Murdochs who own Fox uh, News Corp and Fox about who's going to succeed when the the father, the sort of Rupert Murdoch character finally dies or retires or whatever. And the final season, you know, got all its plaudits, won, won a bunch of Golden Globes and Emmys and, and whatnot. Deserved them, in my opinion. Fantastic show. I loved every season. Not Not much left to say about Succession. You probably know if you know. Number three for me is Beef. The Netflix show, uh, I guess it's a limited series. Maybe they're talking about another season. May or may not involve the same characters, played by Stephen Young and Ali Wong. Also, Joseph Lee, who I believe is uh, plays uh, Stephen Young's brother uh, in a kind of a star-making performance. He's going to be in a bunch of other stuff coming up. Beef is hard to describe. It starts off like a road rage incident between two people that escalates somewhat out of control. And from there it goes to <laughs> distant shores. I mean, it goes so many places that you don't see coming the use of religion in the show, specifically like Korean evangelical churches, a culture that 
I feel like I know so little about, even though the culture is ostensibly quite quite similar to the sort of white American version of that that I grew up in. There's a lot of overlap. There's some distinctives. I, it's just got incredible performances. But ultimately, in the end, it, again, without giving away too much, they go into religion, but they really get into sort of existential concerns. I just thought it was just so, so well done. Really kept me guessing. And I was just continually falling deeper and deeper in love with this show. So Beef is number three. And would again, highly recommend it. Netflix, easy to watch. Number two, I think you should leave season three. We just did a whole episode on this show, so I don't need to say much. It's my favorite comedy of, I don't know, the last 15 years, maybe now the last 20 years. It, it's on its way to my number one favorite comedy ever of any type. So, uh, but again, we already talked about it. No, no need to say any more. Um, also on Netflix. And number one, if you've got friends who like TV, especially prestige TV, as it's called, uh, The Bear. The Bear Season 2, which for me was basically a perfect season of television. And there's a lot of different episodes we could talk about. Fishes and Forks in the middle of the season. Uh, my two favorite episodes. I think most people's favorite episodes. But there are a couple other great ones featuring little side quests uh, for other characters. For instance, the episode that sends Marcus, the pastry chef, over to Amsterdam to learn uh, from some fantastic uh, chefs there. It's just, uh, I, I don't know. This is why we watch TV. This is why we watch anything filmed is so that talented people can put together stories like this. I have already taken the, the episode Fishes, which centers around um, it's a, an event in the past. It's an event that takes place before the timeline of the show. Basically, the show is about Jeremy Allen White's character uh, starting a restaurant in Chicago, kind of takes over a sandwich shop from his recently deceased brother. Uh, Eben Moss Bacharach from Andor is in the show. Ayo Edebiri, uh, who is now maybe my favorite comedic actress working is in the show. I mean, it's just, it's so good. Uh, but that Fishes episode, which takes place before the action, and is supposed to kind of explain the family and the family dynamics, and it heavily features the mother, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Bob Odenkirk's in that one. John Mulaney, surprisingly good in that episode. Anyway, that episode I have already given as homework to multiple therapy clients for them to watch that episode come back, talk to me about what it brings up for them. I probably don't need to say more than that. Go watch The Bear. Uh, I'm going to give you, that's a Hulu show, by the way. Okay, I'm going to give you six honorable mentions here in order before I wrap up the TV segment. Uh, number one, Full Circle. This is Steven Soderbergh. It was on Max, a crime story set in uh, a really interesting population. If I'm not mistaken, Guyana. A bunch of individuals from Guyana who travel to New York City and kind of get involved in the underworld there to pay for their way. But man, it just goes some some great places. Soderbergh is one of my favorite uh, working filmmakers of any sort. Really liked Full Circle. Uh, number two, Slow Horses, Apple TV Plus, a British crime show. This is season three, just outside the top 10 for me, but I've really enjoyed all three seasons it's just a great kind of like competently made, really well acted, fun, keep you guessing kind of mystery uh, British show. Number three, The Diplomat, also Netflix. Carrie Russell, just really well made, funny, but high stakes international diplomacy. 1923, this is my fourth honorable mention. This is the other uh, Sheridan prequel to Yellowstone. Perry Mason, uh, season two, which was a reboot by Max or, or HBO, I'm not sure. And that's like the old uh, detective. I guess he's a lawyer, the old lawyer show. Uh, the second season was really, really good and centered around a kind of loosely historically based prosperity preacher in Los Angeles in like 1930s Los Angeles, 20s or 30s. And that plot line, I just found super interesting. I don't know a ton about that era of American Christianity and that strain. 
And it was just like a fun place to spend some time. And then finally, The Offer. This is barely making the honorable mentions. This is probably just because it was aimed right at me. This is a telling of the making of The Godfather, primarily through the eyes of one of the producers of the film. And I don't know how accurate it is. It's a little bloated, but it's very entertaining. And if you love films, then it's kind of like a fun way to kill, you know, six or seven hours uh, to have something on. You know, I love The Godfather. And I, you know, it was competently made and entertaining. And, you know, so it's a little outside that, that top list, but it was fun. I also watched a couple episodes of Black Mirror, but I didn't finish an entire season. So I didn't put it on the list, but Black Mirror is a, a show that I, I come back to again and again on Netflix, kind of dystopian sci-fi with a very clever twist, usually in every episode. Sometimes I got to be in the right headspace for it, but I do find myself coming back and back to it. So that's maybe a seventh half honorable mention. And I will briefly say, too bad I finished it early 2024, so maybe I'll talk about it later in the year, but Fargo season five, which uh, concluded not too long ago, is incredible. Um, I loved seasons one and two. Five gets by far the most kind of theological. There's some really great stuff about patriarchy in there. There's some really great stuff about sin and forgiveness and... I don't know. It, it's like there. It's such a meaty text, especially from like a, a religious and psychological lens. Maybe there's a way to do a a conversation about that. It, it's harder with TV because it's so long. You know, it's like ten hours or ten episodes of forty five minutes to an hour. So it's a lot to talk about, and we're not going to do like ten episodes on it. But anyway, Fargo season five that would have been number two after the Bear, probably. Uh, or after, or number three after, I think you should leave somewhere around there if I had watched it last year, but I didn't watch it until uh, this month, January. Okay, we'll take a break and come back and talk about movies. My wife and I are just days away from the birth of our second son. And so if you are hearing this now, it means that I am currently getting no sleep. And I will not be conducting any You Have Permission interviews for the next few weeks. Don't worry, we've already we've banked a bunch of them ahead of time. So there will not be any sort of significant break in the action from your perspective, uh, unless something else happens. So no big deal there. Um, and I'm not, I'm not here asking for, you know, a sympathy Patreon contribution or anything like that. I'm just letting you know that this ad is going to be running for a month or two because I'm not going to want to record another one and tell you about the perks of becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Those perks include, of course, two exclusive episodes per month, not available on the main feed, at least not the whole thing on the main feed, access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, and every episode of this podcast ad-free on the special patron feed, which comes into your email inbox once you sign up and you can add it to your regular podcast app and you can listen to all these episodes, the normal ones, not just the patron ones, without any ads. So that's why you might go to patreon.com slash Coke and give seven bucks a month to be a part of the Patreon community. You might also do it mainly because of the Facebook group and the resources there and the community there. There's any number of reasons, really, why you might want to do this. You might think of it as like a, a, a shower present for a new baby. You might just feel bad for me. And maybe you've been here uh, before. Maybe you've been here more than two times and you know just how exhausted I will be for the foreseeable future. Either way, thank you for being a regular listener of this show. Whether or not you join the Patreon community, I don't really care. I'm grateful for your involvement. Thanks for listening, thinking through this stuff with me. I appreciate all the emails I get from listeners. Feel free to send those. This is getting too long for a Patreon ad, so I will end it here. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Our family of now four thanks you.
So when my life is kind of normal in, in what we might call ordinary time, all the mainline Presby- mainline Protestants and liturgical or formerly liturgical Christians will will get what I'm saying there. In an, in my normal life, when there's not a lot of stuff going on, I do like to see a good chunk of movies that come out each year. I like to kind of follow the awards shows to some degree. I have some movie podcasts that I like to listen to. My favorite of which, by the way, is called The Big Picture. And, you know, I like to keep up with it. But this was not a normal year, of course. I finished up grad school classes during the first part of this year. And Jeffrey was pregnant and then gave birth during this year. And it was not, you know, those didn't make it super easy to get out to the theater. But I did see it. I saw a chunk. And I am going to present to you guys my top 10 films of 2023, along with some honorable mentions and a list of films that I didn't see. Actually, I'll start there. So here are some movies that are on a bunch of the year-end lists that I have not yet seen. Uh, Everything on this list I'm about to say I do plan to see, and hopefully I'll get to some of them in the next year or so. Poor Things, Saltburn, Asteroid City, The Boy and the Heron, Priscilla, The Holdovers, Bo is Afraid, Dream Scenario, and Godzilla Minus One. So those are movies I have not seen and therefore are not eligible for this list. All right, without further ado, number 10 for me, Maestro, Netflix's biopic about the legendary American composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein. You know the guy from the R.E.M. song, It's the End of the World, and we know it. Leonard Bernstein. Directed by Bradley Cooper, starring Bradley Cooper. This is his follow-up, directorial follow-up to A Star is Born with Lady Gaga. Also stars Carrie Mulligan. It's an uneven film, I think, but there are some electrifying scenes. I think it's a fantastic central performance by Cooper. It's an incredible use of music, mainly Bernstein's own compositions, as well as some pieces that he conducted with the New York Philharmonic. Psychologically, Maestro is a pretty realistic picture of what one psychiatrist who's studied Bernstein's life has described as a hyperthymic personality. Hyperthymic people, this is not a term that's as much in the psychological lexicon these days, uh, but you can still kind of find literature about it. Hyperthymic people are gregarious and energetic. They tend to sleep less. They get a lot accomplished. They have a lot of self-confidence. They sometimes have very high libidos. They get bored easily. They love attention. They like to break social norms, stuff like that. Uh, Frankly, I think a lot of there's a lot of overlap with kind of the stereotypical theater kid personality or maybe one of the kind of theater kid personality types that we, we generally have in our in our popular conception. And Bernstein really does appear to have been hyperthymic. There's a lot of really interesting ways to go with that psychologically, but I'll just say I enjoyed that part of the film. I think directorially. It's, it's more of a flawed film than A Star is Born, it's, but it's way more, got a lot more like bravura filmmaking in it, a lot of uh, big swings that Cooper is taking. And I'm here for it. They don't all land. Some of them kind of flop and miss. I think it's interesting that the film tries to center Carrie Mulligan so much as his wife. And, you know, she's pretty good in it, but it's not as, the film is not as well served by that, in my opinion. So, nonetheless worth a watch and it's on Netflix. So there you go. Number nine, Napoleon, the new Ridley Scott joint starring Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. Did Sir Ridley bite off a little more than he could chew? Yeah, probably, possibly he did, but are you going to see better set pieces than the battles pictured in this film anytime soon? No, you are probably not. Yes. It's an imperfect film. The classic biopic problem of trying to cover too much ground, too many years. But listen, someone gave Ridley Scott $175 million to make a movie about Napoleon. I'm there. And I really enjoyed most of it. Psychologically, 
The film explores Napoleon less as a short man with short man complex, which is maybe the expected direction and is frankly a pretty tired approach to understanding and talking about Napoleon. And the film explores more the role that his wife Josephine played in his life and the way she attempted to spur him on to some vision of greatness uh, at great, great cost of human life. And as with many films depicting war, um, it is about that cost in other men's lives for the choices and compulsions of powerful leaders with misbegotten personal aims. It's also pretty entertaining to watch. Great film. Uh, Really good film, I should say. I don't know about a great film. Really good film. I'll be watching it again. So that's number nine, Napoleon. Number eight, Past Lives. A fascinating, intricate, balanced, indie, cross-cultural romance starring Greta Lee, uh, who's one of my favorite actresses working since seeing her years ago in the HBO show High Maintenance, another big recommendation from me, by the way. Incredible for sort of building empathy across uh, different ways that people live their lives in the city of New York. But anyway, we're not talking about high maintenance. We're talking about past lives. So Greta Lee plays a Korean woman who moved to the U.S. with her family around elementary school, after which she adopts U.S. culture, starts going by the name Nora instead of her Korean named Hae Sung. She gets married to a white American guy, but connects years later with a childhood friend from Korea. And these two men in her lives really also represent her two identities that both live within her body and mind. The film explores that expertly. It's a great kind of metaphor and lens through which to look at romance or perhaps the other way around that the romance is in the kind of the love triangle or whatever. That's a good lens through which to look at sort of split cultural identity and you've probably heard, if you if you think about movies or listen to things about movies or talk about movies, you've heard people talk about past lives. And I'm just joining the chorus in saying, very well done, very worth watching. Pretty good, pretty good date night movie, just because it's kind of romance focused. Better than most of the movies that I'm going to say on the rest of my 40-year-old man's movie list. Speaking of which, number seven, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, also known as The Covenant, Uh, Guy Ritchie, known for Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, more recently The Gentleman, which I very much enjoyed. This is set during the war in Afghanistan, where a local Afghani interpreter risks his own life and family's lives to carry an injured sergeant, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, across miles of grueling terrain. But that's only that only kind of kickstarts the real plot. Because the interpreter then is facing death by the Taliban and Gyllenhaal has to kind of move heaven and earth to help out this interpreter. This film features maybe the most badass three minutes of military firepower on film I can ever remember seeing. I don't want to say anymore because I want it to come as a shock to you if you watch it. But it's also just a well-made film by a capable director with a lot of heart, a lot of talent, good performances. Highly recommend this to watch like with your dad. My father-in-law loved this film. Uh, we watched it separately, but but we talked about it and had a great time, especially breaking down that particular scene that I'm not going to say anything else about. So that's Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Number six, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. This is a young filmmaker, Daniel Goldhaber's feature about a crew of young environmental activists who, you guessed it, plot to blow up a gas pipeline, basically an act of sort of what we might call eco-terrorism, right? So it's, it is an illegal act that is meant to basically forestall uh, the forces that are destroying the planet through carbon and, and other things like that. All my lefty listeners, those of you who have stuck around with me all these years, this film is catnip. Treat yourselves. Just go watch it. Enjoy yourselves. Dan Rosado, I'm thinking of you. Okay? Ryan Downs, I'm thinking of you. But even if you disagree with the politics of this film, which, you know, I'm I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the reasons that eco-terrorists do what they do. I wouldn't say I'm certainly not like in league with them. I'm certainly quite concerned about climate change. 
Uh, but you know, I'm not, I'm not a hard left kind of guy, but it's just a really well-made crime thriller either way. And that for me, as you may be picking up on is important. It balances multiple big ideas with great storytelling, great visual craft, really good performances by a lot of pretty unknown actors. It really got me excited about independent film, especially young independent film. And that is a theme that I have heard uh, and read about other people who saw and loved this film. It was made for probably less than 1% the budget of Napoleon, probably like a half of a percent the budget of Napoleon, uh, which is incredible when you think about like a, an action kind of crime thriller that is super watchable. It's it's very entertaining, fast-paced. It will keep you enthralled and entertained just like Napoleon, maybe more so than Napoleon, which is long and, you know, probably a little bit bloated. It's just, it's just incredible what you can do for a little bit of money when you've got a really good idea and a really good story and really capable hands working on it. Uh, I think it's still on Hulu. So you should be able to stream that if you've got a Hulu account or that Disney Hulu ESPN bundle, how to blow up a pipeline. Number five bottoms. So this film and How to Blow Up a Pipeline are certainly the least popular films, like the least seen films on my list. Bottoms is a semi-surreal high school sex comedy created by director Emma Seligman and co-stars Rachel Sennett and Ayo Edebiri, who I mentioned earlier for her work on The Bear. Again, one of my favorite people working right now in the industry. So Sennett and Seligman had previously collaborated on an indie film called Shiva Baby, which I really enjoyed. That was on Netflix for a couple years there. I'm not sure if it still is, uh, but Bottoms goes further. Um, and by further, I mean higher concept, higher degree of difficulty, more ambitious. It's basically about two lesbian friends, high schoolers, who start a fight club at their high school as a means to hook up with the hot and popular students that they are each pining after. And that sounds like, okay, fine. We've, you know, Fight Club, that's kind of a fun take. You know, we haven't exactly seen that. But in terms of being a high school sex comedy about getting laid, that's pretty tried and true and maybe overdone territory. But what makes Bottoms so good is the world building. The high school and the world in Bottoms is just enough like our real world and other high school comedies so that we know where we're at in the story but it's also a heightened, somewhat surreal reality. Honestly, quite a bit like Barbie, uh, but in a way that I personally enjoyed a lot more than Barbie. And Barbie did not make my top films list, spoiler alert. Uh, maybe in part because Bottoms did it better, in my opinion, as a film, uh, landed better for me. I watched this movie in a theater with like one other middle-aged man, and I was continuously surprised that both he and I kept laughing out loud, just the two of us. And we would each laugh out loud, the other guys laughing out loud. And I was just like, wow, this is really funny. I'm really excited to, to see it again, maybe with a year or two of space and kind of see how it holds up. Uh, also features a very funny Marshawn Lynch as the faculty advisor to the Fight Club. So that's Bottoms. And I want to say, now that we get to the top four, we get to my Mount Rushmore of 2023, we are in full-on 40-year-old dude mode, so be forewarned. Number four, Killers of the Flower Moon. Scorsese, DiCaprio, and a stunning lead performance by Lily Gladstone, who hopefully will win Best Actress Oscar. I need to see this a second time. I think it might move up on my list after I do. I went into this movie knowing nothing about it, and I actually felt like that kind of did me a disservice I'm not talking about spoilers or anything. I just literally had no idea what the movie was about. I tried not to watch any trailers. I tried not to read anything. I just was like, Scorsese setting something in the American West, I'm in. But I actually think it is helpful to know that it is an adaptation of a book about the sort of systematic murder and financial control of the Osage Nation, which was a group of indigenous Native Americans who, once they were relegated to reservation land, discovered oil on that land and became extremely wealthy 
in terms of oil and just had cash reserves out the yin yang. Uh, but of course, the racism of the time basically used many multiple means to kind of keep them in line and 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 many evil uh, white Americans, colonists, I guess. I mean, I don't, colonials, I don't know what you want to call them. They're not colonists like the American colonies, but using colonialism, the means of the state, legal and illegal, to rob these people of what was theirs, you know, the money from the oil found on their land. And Scorsese takes a bunch of chances in this film. I think most of them work. Fantastic De Niro performance, fantastic DiCaprio. Of course, I mentioned Lily Gladstone as kind of the central um, figure. I wish I had known that because I just, I think I was in the wrong headspace when I first saw it. That being said, it's still number four. So this is a very worth watching movie. Scorsese is my favorite director. It's a very good film of his. It's definitely in his like late period stuff. I would, I would maybe put it kind of in a tier with films like Silence. It's on Apple TV Plus, so if you have that, you can watch it for free, and that's probably all you need to know. Number three, Ferrari, which I did see with my father-in-law in the theater, which I would recommend. The new film from Michael Mann, who is probably in my top five directors. You know, you might know him for Heat, Last of the Mohicans, Collateral, The Insider, Thief, among others. This is where my 40-year-old dudeness is really starting to show, but Adam Driver plays Enzo Ferrari founder, president of, of Ferrari, uh, during a tumultuous 15-month period of his life running that company. Penelope Cruz is a meteorite tearing through the atmosphere as Enzo's wife. She is just fantastic, including <laughs> including what, what are essentially line readings with no words, no lines. She, she basically has line readings where the camera cuts to her, and her only thing to do is a facial expression. And she just knocks it out of the park. One of my favorite actresses. There are some really interesting angles on the Catholic faith of the Ferraris and their local community. It's a thoroughly Catholic Italian territory. It's not a perfect film and not particularly. Is it really even a race car film you know, compared to something like Ford versus Ferrari, which I also love. And we'll probably, I'll probably watch Ford versus Ferrari more times than I'll watch Ferrari. It's more of a rewatchable kind of pure pleasure kind of a film. But Ferrari was really good. I really enjoyed myself. I definitely will, will rewatch it. I love Michael Mann. Love Adam Driver. Just give me more stuff like this, Hollywood, please. Thank you. Number two, Oppenheimer. What needs to be said? Who didn't predict this for me if they thought about it at all? Listen, the question, the question on Robert, Robert Oppenheimer's mind and many other people's mind in the 1940s, whether or not to involve oneself in the creation of nuclear weapons, knowing full well that Adolf Hitler is also pursuing nuclear weapons. Is there any question in recent world history that I find more interesting than that one? There are very few. This is obviously the latest from Christopher Nolan, one of our great directors, it's a great film. It's a great Nolan film. It's certainly among my favorite uh, Nolan films. The third hour of three worked less for me than the first two. The first two hours are so good that it made this my number two film of the year. Maybe just those two hours would have been my number one film. I'm not sure. I will rewatch the first two hours of this movie probably 10 times in my life. Maybe I'll even come around to the final third. Time will tell. You've probably already seen Oppenheimer if you're interested in it, so we can move on and go to number one, but that's my number two. And my number one of the year, when I'm being totally honest with myself, is The Killer, the latest from David Fincher, starring Michael Fassbender. This is on Netflix. It's a Netflix film. It's easy to see. The script was written by the guy who wrote Seven, an earlier David Fincher film, Fincher's maybe my second or third favorite filmmaker. I'd have to think about it. After Scorsese, he's way up there. Uh, his films include Zodiac, The Social Network, Fight Club, Gone Girl, The Game, and the United States version of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Underrated film. He runs a tight ship. He's a world's best craftsman filmmaker. But the killer for me shines, especially because of the screenplay. Essentially, 
the hitman, which is the official character name of Michael Fassbender, is working through questions of philosophy, ethics, how much control he has over his own mind throughout this film. The opening monologue includes an unattributed quote of Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan, writer of the Satanic Bible. But Fassbender's character can't place where he heard the quote or who said it. But the quote is, do what thou wilt. This is the whole of the law. And Fassbender tries to live like a Satanist, but he butts up against this life philosophy. And that's kind of the central tension of the film. It's all interior to him, even though he is a hitman. And even as he carries out violence, uh, violent vengeance on character after character, he's fighting with this internal monologue, which even just talking about it is making me want to watch it again a third time. I've already seen it twice. And again, it's on Netflix. So if you can handle, you know, these kind of darker films, I highly recommend it. Uh, Go watch that if it sounds good to you. So those are my top 10 movies of the year. I've got some honorable mentions for you. Albert Brooks, Defending My Life, a documentary made by Rob Reiner, personal friend of Albert Brooks, a very famous comedian, like bigger in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, I think, than more recently. Great documentary. I really like Brooks as an actor, and I really like a lot of his films, like Defending My Life and stuff like that. Air, that's the story of Nike coming up with the Air Jordans. It's fluffy. Great date movie. I mean, if your partner cares enough about sports, but it's got Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. I mean, it's it's a fun film. Pretty breezy. Prime video. It's an Amazon film. Uh, really enjoyed it. The Equalizer 3. Come on. Talk about dads. I mean, the Equalizer movies are fucking awesome. They are pulpy. They are the the sort of character development is fairly thin, very plot heavy, very violent. Denzel Washington just fantastic late career work from him final honorable mention and this one really could have made it into the top 10 it stayed with me more than than a bunch of the movies on my list perhaps it stayed with me more than everything but the killer and that's the iron claw which is about this professional wrestling family from texas who really goes through unspeakable tragedy and the film is a tall order. There is so much pain, so many awful experiences of this family that the filmmaker must show, but it just makes for kind of a tough hang, especially in the second half. The first half is electric, incredible performances by Zac Efron and others in the film. So if you're interested in in sports movies, and you're like, I can handle a little bit of personal family tragedy, I would highly recommend The Iron Claw. Uh, if you are sensitive to tragedies, then skip this one. It's not for you. And that, and uh, you know, just the, the kind of raw materials out of which they had to work to make this film, tall order, as I said, but expertly done, and uh, I'll definitely be, be re-watching The Iron Claw. Now, I do have another list of movies I loved in 2023 that I didn't see in 2023 or sorry that I saw in 23 that didn't come out in 2023. That's like, you know, a little bit less of a, I don't know, kind of current events type of thing to talk. I'll just walk you through the top 15 without saying anything about them. And you guys can, can do your own thing. Number 15, the menu number 14 croupier, which is like a nineties crime film with Clive Owen 13, the last forest, Incredible documentary about the Yamamo. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, people in the Amazon. I'd actually read a book about them prior. One of, one of the most famous books of cultural anthropology is about this same tribe written like 60 years ago. And this is a contemporary documentary. Fantastic. It was on Netflix for a while. I think it's off now. Number 12, Nightmare Alley. Guillermo del Toro's noir. That really um, pleasantly surprised me. 11, The Exorcist. I had never seen The Exorcist. It is a tough, I mean, some of those scenes are a tough hang, but it is such a well-made film, and uh, I get why everybody loves it so much. Number 10, Triangle of Sadness. Incredible angles around class and influencer culture, wealth, power, just 
hilarious, deeply cutting, so great. Staying in Europe, uh, number nine, the worst person in the world. Jaffrey and I were a year or two late in finally catching that film. Uh, I think it's Norwegian kind of dramedy about a person growing up and, and becoming mature. Incredible film. Number eight, The Day After Trinity, which is a Robert J. Oppenheimer documentary from the 80s, 90s? What year is this from? 81. Uh, fantastic. It's fantastically made. Number seven, Hail Caesar. My my biggest Coen Brothers blind spot up till this year, probably. And I, I loved it. I will watch this movie many times. Number six, Singles. For all my Gen Xers out there, I'm, I missed this growing up. I know I had seen the first half of it, but as I watched it a few months ago, I was like, I never finished this movie. I, I don't remember the second half. Oh my goodness. I just, man, what is there to say? Cameron Crowe, when he's cooking, he's cooking. Almost Famous is my favorite movie of all time. It's another Cameron Crowe film. Incredible soundtrack to singles. Just a great hang. Uh, pretty good vibrations listeners. If you've been enjoying the 90s episodes, do yourself a favor and go watch singles. Number five, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. This is a classic Western, uh, kind of like a, almost like a psychological moral thriller a John Huston film from 1948 that, you know, I'd, I'd known about. It gets on lists of the greatest films and man, it holds up. Fantastic. Number four, a newer one to me, Death Rides a Horse. This is a 1967 spaghetti Western, not directed by Sergio Leone, but Giulio Petroni. And uh, it's just like, a it's it's kind of thought of as like, the best non-Leone spaghetti Western. Those are Italian Westerns made kind of maybe late fifties, but certainly sixties and into the seventies uh, with largely American stars. Uh, Lee Van Cleef is the star of this film. Clint Eastwood, of course, is the star of most of those Leone films like Fistful of Dollars, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, stuff like that. Uh, Ennio Mar Marconi score, just like the Leone films have uh, and just so great. I mean, the dubbing is, is hard. You have to just kind of put on subtitles and don't look at their mouths when they're talking because it, I don't know, for me, it's very annoying, but great film, great plot. Number three, speaking of a great plot, American animals, which is an American kind of indie crime film from 2018 uh, with Barry Keegan uh, and others. I missed it back when it came out. It's based on a true story that happened in Lexington, Kentucky in 2004 of these young guys who dress up like old men and perform an art heist. And it is just, it is probably the most interesting blending of documentary footage of the actual perpetrators of the crime. And, you know, it's a filmed adaptation. I mean, it's like a dramatization of what they did, but the dramatization doesn't look like, like history channel dramatizations. It's like, it's a full on incredibly made film, but then that's mixed in with this straight to camera talking head stuff of the real people. And that sounds like it would not work. And let me tell you guys, it worked. It worked so well. It kind of blew my mind. I've been thinking I have to decorate my studio. Um, sorry, my, my therapy office slash podcasting space. Once we, once we get up settled moving next year and I am like, should I get an American Animals poster? Like, is it that good that I should memorialize this with a poster on the wall for clients to puzzle over? Maybe. Number two, When We Were Kings. This is a documentary, the story of the rumble in the jungle uh, between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. This was on a bunch of lists of like, you know, greatest boxing movies, greatest sports movies, greatest documentaries of all time. And it is. I mean, it's just a fantastic document. If you're at all interested in that, highly recommend it. Number one, High and Low, Akira Kurosawa. Uh, I, I'm like a, I'm a pretty big Kurosawa fan. Some of the older samurai stuff feels like the pacing uh, and some of maybe just some of the cultural distance. It can be kind of tough for me to lock in, but this film is more, you know, kind of urban set in Tokyo, crime thriller, all about class upper class, lower class, uh, financial issues, you know, detective work and just the, the kind of characterization and plotting of it and the way that each strand 
plays into the other. I mean, this is huge influence on many of my favorite directors, especially those who work in the crime genre, which is my favorite genre of film, uh, of genre films. And man, it, it lived up to expectations. I gave it a nine out of 10 over on Letterboxd, which by the way, you can, if you're a film nerd and you use Letterboxd, I'm at uh, Dan Coke, just no spaces, my, just my name. Okay, so that was my top 15 of the films I saw last year that didn't come out last year. And that will do it for us today. I am, as I, as I believe I mentioned earlier, I'm really interested in doing more episodes that are in some way related to film and TV, especially where I can find connections to psychology or the study of religion or theology. And so if you guys like this stuff from me, if you are interested in kind of the way I tend to think and talk about these things, please give me some feedback uh, toward that end and ideas for things you'd like me to cover. And if you have particular requests, like getting Kristen on there or something like that, just, just let us know. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also comment, you know, on Instagram, places like that. All right. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this and making me sound more coherent than I am. 